Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptions of two rounds of frightening fiction about unbelievable behavior and alien anomalies. I'm Otis Jiry, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its seventh season. My show is available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found. And tonight, I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my very good friend Steve Taylor. And I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring life to the frightening fiction of Craig Groshek and Matt Demersky, our voice talents, Luis Bermudez and Elijah Ramsey. Now get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> our first tale tonight was written by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's creator, Craig Groshek, himself. In it, a gentleman receives a rude awakening when his roommate and friend of many years begins exhibiting extremely bizarre behavior. And it's bound to leave you second-guessing how well you know those closest to you. Without further ado, I present to you, My Best Friend is Buried. My roommate's name is Greg Warburton. He and I became... Good friends in high school when I met him after putting out a drummer wanted ad after becoming convinced my heavy metal band Warfare was going to be the next big thing. Now, now, I know what you're thinking, and trust me when I say I'm as surprised as you are that we're not a household name yet. 
In all seriousness, though, our band was awful, and I couldn't sing at all, but that didn't stop us from trying, and in spite of our musical failures, Greg and I were a great team. He was there for me through countless breakups, and I can't count the number of times I've helped the guy out over the years with the blown-out tire or his innumerable relationship woes. Greg and I share a three-bedroom place, just a short drive from the places we work, so it's very convenient in that regard. Not only that, but the place is nice, the rent is affordable, and my landlord is an easygoing family man who's always quick to fix anything that goes wrong. It's safe to say that for the majority of our relationship, Greg and I have had it great. But recently, everything's changed, and not for the better. Thirty days ago, Greg tried to murder me in my sleep. That's right, my roommate, my best friend since my junior year in high school, tried to kill me. Now... You'd think that would be the sort of thing that would be a deal-breaker, but it's more complicated than that. You see, he wasn't conscious when he did it. He was sleepwalking. Looking back, there wasn't much I could do about it, seeing as how it came out of left field. The day it happened, we had both had a long, exhausting day at our day jobs, and turned in early for the night after dinner. This wasn't unusual. We both work in IT and our jobs are stressful. We're constantly being yelled at by customers, co-workers, and our managers, whether or not we're actually doing anything wrong. If you've ever worked in IT, you know exactly how true this is. Looking back at it, the only thing remotely strange about the day was that Greg came home from the office with a large plastic bag with a local hardware store's logo printed on it and set it down on the kitchen counter. I found this a bit odd since Greg's not a handyman. Give the man a computer and he can run laps around the average person, but hand him a hammer and nails and he's as clueless as a toddler. Actually, I take that back. The toddler's got a better chance of figuring out what to do with those things. The point is, Greg benefits tremendously from having an undo button on his software and real life hasn't made that feature available. I remember asking Greg what was in the back. It looked pretty big, whatever it was. Mouth half full with a slice of pizza, he just dismissed it, saying, Oh, just pick something up from Frank's. I was on the way home and it just came to me, you know? Might come in handy later. I didn't badger him about what it was. We didn't have a lot of tools in the house and when there was a problem with something we usually just called our landlord. Like I said, he was an excellent maintenance man, so there was really no pressure to do anything ourselves. Why spend the money on it when the landlord would do it for you, am I right? So I didn't ask about it again. Other than Greg's impulse shopping, there was nothing extraordinary about the day at all. And besides, Greg doesn't have a history of sleepwalking. In the five years we've been roommates, I've never known him to do it, and he's never said a thing about it running in his family or ever having done it as a kid. And before this, I never met anyone who did it either. Everything I've learned about the phenomena I've learned in the past month, but none of that knowledge helped me the first night, when he, without realizing it, nearly killed me. According to my digital bedside clock, I hadn't even been asleep for an hour when he first wandered into my bedroom. Now. I trust Greg, so I didn't even have my door locked. It was shut, of course, and we respect each other's privacy, but we don't lock each other out. Not unless we've got a date over, in which case, it's an unspoken rule that we don't knock or bother the other guy. In short, I wasn't worried, and he was never worried about me disturbing his privacy either. So imagine my surprise when I woke up to the sound of an intruder stumbling into my darkened room just after sunset, bumping into the dresser beside my door with enough force to cause it to lift from the ground and slam back down into the wall with a thud. I immediately shot up in bed and fight or flight instincts took over. Prior to this incident, I'd often wondered what I would do in just such a scenario. What would I use as a weapon and how effective would it be? Well, none of those imagined situations ever moved me to take any sort of action. I didn't own a gun, 
and I wasn't paranoid enough to place a claw hammer or a brick on my bedside table. So I grabbed the most suitable weapon I had nearby, my lamp itself. I must have looked ridiculous at that moment, sitting up in bed in a cold sweat holding a lamp shade and all in both hands, prepared to assault a presumably armed robber with a made-in-China lamp I got from Walmart for less than $10, but it's the best I had. Armed with my weapon of choice, I strained my eyes to see in the darkened room, to make better sense out of what was happening and who was the cause of the disturbance. What I saw is forever etched into my mind. It was Greg, standing near my doorway. From the light in the illuminated hallway, I could see that he was fully clothed, but for some reason was wearing a rubber glove on his one visible hand as well as a hospital-style mask as if he'd just been working with hazardous materials. From my vantage point, from observing his posture, he appeared to be alert, and yet he had clearly smashed into my dresser with tremendous force, suggesting that maybe he was drunk. It wouldn't have been unusual for Greg to drink when he meant to go to bed instead. He wasn't an alcoholic, not exactly, but when he had a rough day at work or troubles with the opposite sex, which regrettably was more often than he'd like to admit, He's been known to down a few shots of whiskey to calm his nerves. When I realized it was Greg in the room and not some stranger, I felt an odd mixture of relief and utter confusion. After all, he'd never done anything like this before. And it was Greg, my roommate, my best friend, my confidant and wingman for the better part of a decade. If he was bursting into my room like this, surely something had to be wrong, or else he wouldn't do it. Or so my sleep-deprived mind reasoned. For a moment, Greg just stood in my doorway, swaying slightly. He wasn't approaching, but he wasn't leaving either. So I did what any logical person would do at that point, and called out, Greg, dude, what the fuck are you doing? It came out in a semi-serious manner, the way you chastise your drinking buddies at the bar when you're equally hammered, and they've just done something that would have gotten them far more negative attention under any other circumstances. Greg didn't answer me, so I spoke again. Greg, man, I said, what are you doing? Did you need something? What's the matter? He continued swaying, and I noticed for the first time that he was breathing deeply, long drawn out inhalation followed by slow, steady exhalations. My gaze then shifted to his face. In the dark, it was a bit hard to tell, especially with the way he was backlit by the hallway lights, but it looked like his eyes were wide open. And yet, they didn't seem to be fixated on me or his surroundings at all. He was simply staring vacantly into space. The hundred-yard stare, I guess they call it. Holy shit, man, are you... are you sleepwalking? It came out with a bit of a chuckle, but it was a nervous laughter. Something about how bizarre this all was, and the fact that I had never experienced anything like this before and didn't know how to handle it, along with this odd attire, rendered my frazzled, stressed-out brain incapable of understanding. The only thing I'd ever heard about sleepwalkers is that you're not, under any circumstances, to try to wake them up. I knew enough to know that, at least. I didn't know why Greg had a yellow rubber glove on, or what he had been doing that required a mask, or why he was breathing like he was. But I knew he needed to get back to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning, I thought. My idea went straight out the window, however when Greg pulled his other hand out from behind his back and revealed that this entire time he'd been holding a machete. Holy shit, Greg! Is that a machete? I practically yelped. What are you doing, man? Where did you get a goddamned machete? Then I remembered the bag on the counter, the hardware store bag with a large, mysterious object in it, and I thought back to my roommate's words. Might come in handy later. Is this what he meant by later? I thought. Come in handy. To kill me? For what? What did I do? In a matter of seconds, my mind was racing with questions. 
So far as I knew, I had done absolutely nothing to my friend of so many years to raise his ire. Certainly nothing so serious as to warrant drunkenly stumbling into my room and murdering me. Greg! I yelled again, absolutely certain by this point that he was sleepwalking. There was no way in hell my friend, of all people, was standing in my room holding a knife he'd just bought that afternoon with the intent of using it later and dressed like he was ready for a zombie apocalypse if he was awake and aware of what he was doing. It wasn't possible. None of that made the situation any less terrifying. In fact, if anything, it made it far more dreadful. Sleepwalkers are unpredictable, I've since read. They don't act like themselves, more like pre-programmed automatons, often with total ignorance of their surroundings, even when their eyes are open and they otherwise appear to be conscious of them. You might imagine you know what you would do in my situation. Friend or not, if someone broke into your room in the middle of the night, brandishing a weapon you just know isn't for the purposes of making a sandwich, you'd like to think that you would take steps to defend yourself or to escape. Obviously, you would do one of those things. Well, let me tell you, you might imagine you would do those things, but there's a good chance you wouldn't. When your body goes into shock in the face of sudden trauma, be it physical or mental, you lose control of your rational mind, and your reptile brain takes over, and it doesn't care if its course of action is logical. In my case, my mind chose neither fight or flight. No. No, it chose freeze. Fucking freeze. As Greg continued swaying in my doorway, donning cleaning supplies and gripping a gleaming 18-inch blade, I simply sat and waited. For what, I don't know. Perhaps I thought that if I didn't move, he would suddenly come to and realize what he was doing, and he'd apologize and... I don't know. We would get some sort of help. Something. Anything. But Greg did move, and when he did, I wasn't prepared at all. One moment he was standing in the doorway, gently rocking back and forth as if he was being lapped by gentle waves. The next thing I knew, he burst into a short sprint, dashing wordlessly across the room in a heartbeat, extending his right arm and preparing to swing the machete at my neck. At the last possible moment, in what I can only describe as a totally automatic response, I flung my cheap plastic lamp as hard as I could in Greg's direction. It landed a glancing blow just shy of the center of his forehead, striking him above his right eye with thankfully enough force to cause him to stagger. God only knows what would have happened if my aim had been off and if I had missed him entirely. The blow from the lamp caused Greg to lose his balance enough that his swing went wide and the machete lodged itself not in my carotid artery, but rather in the drywall just behind my headboard. Even with the indirect hit, the incredibly sharp blade embedded itself a good inch or two into the gypsum requiring more effort than Greg was able to muster in his present state, it seemed. And though he tried, he quickly abandoned his attempts to dislodge the blade from the periwinkle-painted wall. Fortunately for me, my reptile brain had disengaged its autopilot function at this point, and I leapt from my bed like a man on fire and flew down the hallway into the living room and across the kitchen floor, heading straight for the rack of keys in our small foyer. I had no intention of sticking around and trying to reason with my friend, whether he was sleepwalking or not. Clearly, something horribly wrong had just happened, and I had no idea what he was going to do next. Even from my location in the front entryway, I could hear him grunting as he labored to remove the machete from the wall, presumably to try and finish what he started. As my feet made contact with the tile of the kitchen floor, I caught a brief glimpse of the countertop where the Frank's hardware bag sat empty, its former contents having found a new home in my bedroom. In the briefest of moments, as I passed the counter, I took my eyes off my prize, the keys to my 2010 Kia Soul, and spotted Greg's receipt beside the bag. Automatically, for reasons unbeknownst to me to this day, I retrieved the receipt from the counter. Then, I slipped. I slipped and fell hard, my left elbow connected with the tiles of the inexplicably slick kitchen floor, and though the pain didn't hit right away, 
it was obvious I had broken my arm. In a not-so-subtle manner, the jagged humerus jutting out of my bicep informed me of this. To make matters worse, I had failed to tuck my chin to my chest while falling and had struck the back of my skull as well, which left the room spinning. At that exact moment, I heard a sound which, if it's at all possible, was even more frightening than the sound of your own bones ejecting from their meaty confines. Greg had loosened the machete from the wall with a thunk and was rapidly storming in my direction. In spite of my injuries, I immediately sobered and came to my senses. Hurt or not, I had to decide whether I was going to live or die, and I decided to live. With tremendous effort, I got to my knees and placed a hand from my uninjured arm atop the counter and did my best to pull myself to a standing position, all the while leaving bloody handprints in my wake. My blood? I took a look at my disfigured arm. No, not my blood. The lower portion of my arm was dangling like a wet noodle as a result of its being unceremoniously disconnected from its upper half, and the break, though alarming to look at it, was relatively bloodless. If I hadn't been utterly terrified at the moment, fueled almost exclusively by adrenaline, I might have been fascinated. Instead, I was left wondering, if it's not my blood, then whose is it? That's when I saw the severed head set down neatly in the corner of the kitchen beside the refrigerator. Its eyes were open wide and its mouth agape in a pained grimace, the fear of its former owner's final moments etched indelibly upon its countenance. That's when I realized what or who I was looking at. I shuddered and retched involuntarily. Greg, it was Greg's head. Even with his features obscured by gore, and his blood-soaked hair matted to his scalp. But how? How? Nothing made any sense. My hand swam with the possibilities, but at the same time, I had no time to sort things out rationally. Someone had just tried to kill me, and whoever they were, they were about to try and finish the job. I did have time to realize, however just how much blood was on the kitchen floor, and my stomach finally released its tenuous holds on its contents. The next few moments were a haze, and I am alarmed to say that to this day, I have only the slightest idea how I ended up at St. Agnes's Hospital and in a recovery room post-surgery to repair my shattered extremity. All I knew was that I was alive, and that my roommate or someone that looked exactly like him had tried to decapitate me and that I wasn't his only victim. When a nurse entered my room to check my vitals, she was surprised to see I was fully awake. She was about to call for assistance, I presume, when I stopped her and asked the very first thing that came to mind. Where's Greg? I shouted more times than I'd care to admit. The person that attacked me, where is he? Is he under arrest? Did they catch him? Where's my roommate? I'm certain I sounded hysterical. Hold on just a minute, the nurse said, clearly surprised by my outburst. What's going on? I screamed again. I need to know. My roommate is dead or tried to kill me, and I need to know where he is. J j just a moment, the nurse replied with more than a hint of alarm in her voice. I'll send for someone who can help. One moment, sir. And with that, she was gone, leaving me alone in my room, looking over my bruised and broken body. My arm was in a cast, and I felt like I'd been hit by a bus. When a pair of police officers in full uniform stepped into the room a few minutes later, I repeated my question. Please, will someone tell me what happened to my roommate, Greg? The police officers exchanged a grave look, and then said the words that chilled me to my core. Mr. Duplessis, my name is Lieutenant Davison. Allow me to say, sir, I'm so sorry about what's happened, and I'd prefer to wait until you're feeling a bit better to begin questioning, and we're still actively investigating as we're short on answers ourselves. The taller of the two men said, apparently superior to the shorter cop. 
Greg Warburton's remains were discovered in your kitchen. He'd been decapitated. And, uh, he stammered. His body has not been located. Oh, my God. I said. I'm afraid that's not the strangest part, sir, the shorter officer added. Security cameras outside your apartment complex also captured footage of someone who matched Mr. Warburton's description leaving on foot and heading for a nearby tree line. Footprints led to the Birch River, at which point we lost the trail. That... that doesn't make any sense, I cried. I struggled to comprehend what they were saying. How could Greg's... No, 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 no. I understand this is confusing, sir, the taller officer replied. Clearly, something odd is happening, but I assure you, there's a rational explanation and we're doing everything we can to get to the bottom of this and locate Mr. Warburton's body and his killer. In the meantime, Mr. Duplessis, the shorter cop said, we'd like to ask you some questions if you're feeling up to the task. I nodded in acquiescence. Just as the officers were about to begin their questioning, however, the superior officer received a call on his mobile phone. Before my eyes, I watched as Lieutenant Davison's eyes grew wide, and he rubbed his temple in consternation. A moment later, the call was over, and he was addressing me directly. Mr. Duplessis, I'm sorry to cut this short, Davison said, clearly uncomfortable. We have a situation. A gentleman in a nearby park claims to have been attacked by someone matching Mr. Warburton's description, wielding a bloodied machete. He swallowed hard. We've gotta go. The days that followed were a blur. My mother and father and other loved ones came to visit me in the hospital, and a few days later I was released and provided a referral to a physical therapist to help with my recovery. My arm was worse than I had originally suspected, as it turns out. To top it off, I developed something akin to PTSD whenever I went anywhere near my apartment, so I moved back in with my parents temporarily. It was quite an adjustment, but that was the least of my concerns. Local news was abuzz with news about my attacker, who police failed to apprehend even after a string of attacks on total strangers over the next week. In every case, the victims described him as looking identical to my former roommate, down to his hair, build, and eye color. Greg's body was never located. His family hosted a small funeral for immediate family only, obviously closed casket as Greg's remains had been retained by the police as evidence while their investigation was ongoing. I was not invited to the funeral, and I wouldn't have attended even if they had asked. Three weeks after the services, both to my surprise and relief, my attacker was finally apprehended. And for the first time in a long while, I was confident the entire nightmare was finally behind me. I was certain that Greg's family would have closure and that all of us would soon have the answers we needed. My hope was short-lived, however. Forensic and genetic testing were soon completed and revealed that my assailant's fingerprints matched Greg's exactly. In the face of logic and all things holy, according to the crime lab, I'd been attacked by my roommate while his head was lying separated from his body in a separate room. Things made even less sense than before. And then, my attacker was found dead in his cell, decapitated. He had no access to any weapons of any kind, and yet, his head had been severed roughly. According to Lieutenant Davison, who'd been keeping me informed, security footage from within the cell showed my attacker attempting to remove his own head with his... with his bare hands. And the entire time he was doing it, he stared straight at the camera, grinning ear to ear. Just before he was finished, guards making their rounds approached him. When they realized what he had done to himself, they called for an ambulance and opened his cell door. Then, with one final tug, he pulled his head free from the stump of his neck and collapsed to the floor, smiling all the while. The following day, my attacker's severed head, which had been stored in a locker alongside its body, 
disappeared from the morgue without a trace. This time, there were no security cameras monitoring the area and little evidence pointing to a perpetrator. Everyone working in the morgue was questioned, of course, but nothing tying any of them to the crime was discovered, and to this day, no one has any idea what happened or why. Lieutenant Davison resigned the following week, along with several other members of the police department that had been unfortunate enough to be involved with the case. Several of them later committed suicide, and though no one publicly admitted that their having been involved in the investigation into the murder of my roommate was linked to their deaths, I know better. I consider myself lucky to have only had my attacker's final moments described to me rather than seeing them for myself. In the end, Greg's body was never found, neither was my attacker's head, and in a cemetery not too far from my apartment, there are two graves, one containing a full-size casket containing my best friend's head and nothing more, and another containing the remains of his killer, a headless body matching Greg's in every way, and sometimes, when I've not kept myself busy enough with other things, I wonder what the hell actually happened and where my assailant's head and my roommate's body ended up. And I'm afraid that one night I'll wake up again to find someone standing over my bed in the dark, machete in hand, prepared to finish what it started. And I worry that whoever it truly is, that they'll look just like Greg. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now... All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed My Best Friend is Buried, as written by Chilling Tales creator Craig Groshek and voiced by Luis Bermudez. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by author Matt Demersky and performed by Elijah Ramsey. In it, a gentleman comes face to face with proof that we humans are not the only intelligent life in the cosmos. Without further ado, I present to you Past the Spine. My friend Shannon had been through quite a bit in the past few years, and that was the only reason that I didn't immediately call the police when I stopped by her work and found her halfway through the process of climbing out of a recently deceased corpse. She was drenched in blood, naked, and absolutely silent, except for her exhausted breathing as she pulled herself up and out. The morgue around her was otherwise normal and I saw no indication of how exactly she had fit inside of the old man's body. But of course, I was in shock. She had some towels ready nearby. I handed her one as I turned respectfully away. Christ! She jumped when she saw me standing there with the towel offered toward her, but took it quickly. Shit! What did you see? I stared at the wall of cold chambers while she dried herself off behind me. I don't know, Shannon. What the hell were you doing? I'm not some kind of freak, she said immediately. Please, just let me explain. Explain? What the hell could you possibly explain about this? 
I put my shirt over my nose to block out the horrid smell of the open body, but it didn't work. I waited until she shoved her clothes on and finally turned around. You missed some. Her hair was still drenched in black, red, and yellow fluids, but the best she could do was wrap a second towel around it. Look, it's not some sort of fetish. There's something down there. I fought down the urge to vomit as I looked into the frail old man's still steaming body. His heart, lungs, stomach, pancreas, and intestines had all been coiled around in a haphazard circle covered in various oozes. Down where? In there. Her expression was haunted. Past the spine. Is this a joke? I couldn't believe it. No. I took a step closer and tried to look down the middle of the circle of organs, but there wasn't any gap between them. Then what do you mean? What's down there? She gulped unhappily. I, I don't know exactly. A space? Narrowing my eyes, I thought about what I'd seen. She hadn't slipped up out of the body sideways. She'd climbed straight up as if out of a hole. The sight had been very disconcerting. It hadn't been geometrically possible, and my brain was still struggling to make sense of the memory. It was possible she was telling the truth, and there really was some sort of weird hole in this old guy's body. You're serious? I reached for a long metal tool on a tray nearby. That won't work, she said, stopping me. It's made of metal, so it won't work. Only living things work. You can't even reach it wearing gloves. Has to be your bare hand. Which is why I think nobody else has found this. Really? I sighed. It was definitely a prank. But I wasn't one to hesitate and get emotional. Fine. Let's do this ridiculous nonsense. I took the last step held my breath against the stench, and reached straight down. After pushing between squishy wet tissues and organs, my hand came to rest on the hard bones of the old man's spine. I looked to Shannon, but she wasn't laughing. Past the spine, she nodded and gulped audibly. As disgusting as it was, I was determined to see this strange situation through. I moved my hand to the side, and my finger slipped deeper. What the hell? I frowned and leaned down closer to the corpse as my hand continued to push between what felt like a deep pile of squelching organs. I went down all the way to my shoulder until my short sleeve hit the inside of the old man's back skin and refused to go further. Oh my god, you're telling the truth! I pulled my arm out as fast as I could and held it away to avoid the dripping juices I'd brought with me. My arm was covered in a distinctly thicker goo than the wet ring around my sleeve. Whatever was down there, my non-living shirt had not been able to enter. What is it? Shannon shook her head. That's what I've been trying to figure out. After somebody dies, there's a short window where it... whatever it is remains open. I took another towel and wiped my arm off as best I could while trying not to gag. Wait, do you mean it isn't just this particular body? Yes. She went over and began sewing up the chest cavity. I'm new here, but I accidentally discovered whatever it is on my second autopsy. She looked past me at the door. My boss is never here and leaves me to do this on my own, so I've been trying to figure out what it is. I dropped vines down a few times, but they only work if they're still attached to the plant. Meaning still alive? Yeah, and only new corpses work. 96 minutes or so after death, there's a weird tug, and then the vines are snapped off and I can't feel that weird space with my hand anymore. But I haven't been able to figure anything else out because technology won't go in. It was disgusting, horrifying, and fascinating all at once. What could it possibly be? What could it possibly mean? So, you decided to go down there yourself? She nodded. 
I promise I'm not a weirdo. I just had to know. The thought has been tormenting me for months. What if that's where our soul is? Or what if it's an afterlife of some sort? She looked away. Or what if Brian's in there somewhere? That sounded like a problem. Brian's dead, Shannon. I told her calmly. You're not going to find him in whatever the hell that is. Softly, she said. You didn't see him die in front of you. She kept her gaze down to avoid looking me in the eye. The world is going crazy. There's hate and delusion everywhere. People need this now more than ever. If we could find out what happens after death, it could change everything. What else could I say or do? She wasn't going to stop just because I said so. The most I could do was get her to agree to a certain set of precautionary conditions. She'd never gone more than a few moments deep simply because of sheer terror. But she would be safer if I was in the morgue to watch over her. We special ordered the longest vine plant we could find, and I waited for her call. It came very late on a Tuesday. I spent six minutes getting there and bringing the plant. Nobody else was around, and she already had the poor teenager cut open and ready. With a white, blood-stained sheet over his head and legs, she disrobed, tied the vine around her left ankle, and then took a deep breath to calm herself. There's at least 30 minutes left on this one, she told me. I set my watch. You've got seven minutes. No further. Just to be safe. She nodded nervously and moved forward. The sight of a person climbing headfirst down into a steaming open chest cavity really cannot be conveyed in words. I'd popped nausea medicine on the way over, and I was glad I had. Her waist almost didn't fit, but I pushed her bare feet down, and she slid out of view between the organs, which congealed back into place when she was gone. The long vine began sliding down between, and I waited with a pounding heart. What was she saying? What was she doing down there? I was probably imagining it worse than it was, since she'd had space to turn around the previous time. My mind constructed a vision of a tight, organic tunnel that might close like a muscle and crush her to death. Or perhaps, there was an enormous drop into a never-ending void. How could we possibly know until it was too late? My watch counted down the seconds interminably. Four minutes passed, and then five. The vine was still being pulled in. At six minutes, it stopped, and I sighed with relief. That had to mean she was coming back. But she did not emerge at seven minutes. The tension in my chest rose. At eight minutes, I began to pull the vine. It moved easily, and I figured I was pulling up slack until a snapped end emerged. Panicking, I reached my hand down. It was still there. She hadn't been trapped. She just lost the vine at a weak point in the plant we hadn't caught. I waited. At 10 minutes, I began to panic. At 11, I forced myself to focus. At 12, I knew for certain she was in trouble. I paced around for a full 30 seconds before screaming at myself to stop wasting time. I tore off my watch and clothes, closed my eyes, and basically shoved my arms and head down into the swamp of blood and guts held open on the autopsy table. I found the teenager's spine and pushed my way past it. This time, I didn't stop. It was easier than expected. Despite the pressure from wet flesh on every side, I slid right in. The knot of vine tied around my ankle got caught on spine bones, but I reached back through the pile of organs and freed it with terrified fingers. It was only when I had fallen further and felt air on my face that I finally took an explosive breath and opened my eyes. The air was a thousand years beyond foul but breathable, just like she told me. It smelled and felt 
like breathing in rotting corpse and dying diseased flesh as a veritable fog. A blood mist. The sight was similar. Shannon had also told me that the place had a dim crimson glow about it. Omnipresent and without source. And by this light, I saw choking miasma in two directions. Bloodless arteries open to my left and right, neither big enough to fit a person until I pushed in and the muscle-bound walls relaxed to give me access. I followed the remains of her snapped vine. More than anything, I wished I had clothes on. Every single surface was alive, pulsing with a distant heartbeat and secreting dark substances that were strangely hot, cold, or even numbing to the touch. Being naked in such an environment like that made me feel vulnerable in a way that brought out terror at every unexpected noise, sight, and texture. I cursed Shannon's decision-making more than a few times, that was for sure. But I wasn't going to let her die down here. Her vine entered what looked like a hollow groove into a massive bone, and I was happy just to be on a solid surface as I crawled between increasingly narrow white walls lit in red. This tunnel had been carved. I could see that in the spiraling notches all around. Had the muscle tunnels also been drilled out, but then later healed away the scars? It was as if some worm or parasite had dug its way through a dimension of flesh, and we were merely following in its ancient wake. The smooth bone began to steepen, and I guessed that Shannon might have slipped and slid here. Carefully bracing myself on the spiral notches, I worked my way down the incline with my vine still tightly bound to my ankle. And good I did. The bone spiral tunnel ended at a steep, fleshy drop-off. Shannon was there below, clinging to a solid white spur. I was still inside the bone itself, so I could only see down, but I carefully moved to reach her hand with mine. She stared up at me, with horror in her eyes. Her voice was odd, distant and distorted by the rot-congested air. Don't look out! What do you mean? I called to her. As I leaned out of the bone, the view away from the wall of flesh began to open up. I'd finally reached an open place, rather than a tunnel and I could sense that if I turned my head, I would see a tremendous vista. It was the same sense I'd had a few times in my life while riding a ski lift or walking past a window on a plane. All I had to do was glance. She screamed again. Don't look! For once in my life, I listened to someone else. I didn't look. Our hands met, but both were slippery. I tried to rub the liquids off on my skin, but that didn't work. Everything was wet and disgusting. I leaned down further and offered an elbow. Wrap your entire arm around my elbow! I shouted. The act made the world beyond us open up a little bit more, and I could feel horrific sights beginning to piece themselves together in the corners of my eye. I couldn't quite tell what was happening out there. But if I so much as darted my gaze, she grabbed my arm and screamed in my ear. Don't look! Don't you look, damn it! What had that been? She'd said a word, but the meaning and intonations had been alien to my mind. By the look on her face, she'd heard it too. I pulled her up with all my might, and the nightmare world outside our bone tunnel receded. Together, we climbed our way back up the spiral carvings, then crawled as fast as we could along the bleeding muscle. The living world around us didn't seem to react to us or care about us in any way. For some reason, I'd expected anger or hunger, or at least something. If it was alive, if it was conscious, if it was sentient, we were nothing at all to it. We reached the point where the vines rose up into a seething mass of dark organs, 
and I pushed her up ahead of me. Then, for some reason, I turned and looked down the other direction, the way I had not gone when I'd first arrived. The crimson-lit silhouette of a vaguely teenaged boy sat curled up and crying at a curve in the tunnel. He raised his head, as if he could somehow sense my looking at him. He began to crawl forward. Help me! Frozen and aghast, I waited. Help me! He screamed again as he came near. Oh, what's happening? I was in the car, and there was this loud crunch, and I hit my head, and I thought for sure I... He paused at hearing his own words. What is that? Why can't I say... No! Why no? He looked at me from two arm lengths away. Are we in hell? I didn't know what to tell him. I'd never seen such agony and loss in another human being's body language before. And he still didn't know the truth. I gulped down my paralysis. Can... Can you... See me? He nodded. Help me. What could I tell him? I chose my words carefully. I don't think I can. Why? He whimpered so sadly. I thought it would break my heart. Why can't you help me? You... I shook with a portion of the pain I was about to give him. You don't... You don't have a face. He just sat there sobbing as I leapt up and climbed. I knew the sound of that hopelessness would haunt me for the rest of my life. It was unlike anything a human being on earth could make. For it was absolute. And it was forever. I pushed up out of the corpse on the table and crashed my way to the cold, hard, dry floor. The impact hurt. But nothing ever felt so safe and secure. Shannon sat curled up in a corner, much like the boy I'd seen and she'd given no thought to putting her clothes back on or getting the dozen kinds of plasm and blood off. She could only stare at the floor in shock, rock back and forth, and murmur. He wants me to tell people about him. Who? I asked her. The teenager? He wouldn't survive here even if we brought him with us. No. She whispered. He wants me to tell people about him. He saw into me. He saw into me when I looked at him. He put his fingers into my gray matter and massaged my brain tissue without ever touching me. He said the Bible and the Quran are close. But we got it slightly wrong. A few things backwards. She stopped rocking in place and stared me in the eye. We're not going to tell anyone about her, are we? I got a towel and wrapped it around her. No, we won't say a word. And you know, at the time, I actually believed that. I thought I'd gotten away with it by not looking but the corner of my vision did absorb some small portion of whatever nightmare she witnessed. And that's why, after several weeks of resisting, I can't help but write this. I simply feel compelled to tell people what happened, and to tell people that exists. So now you know too. I hope that's not a problem.
hope you enjoyed Pass the Spine, as written by Matt Demersky and performed by Elijah Ramsey. Thank you for joining us for tonight's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. As a reminder, if you're looking for more horror than you can handle, check out my podcast, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, now in its seventh season and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Wherever else you can listen and subscribe to your favorite storytelling programs. Or visit simplyscarypodcast.com and visit our shows page and you'll find it there. Each of my seasons features 24 episodes, so if you're new, oh boy, do you have a lot of catching up to do. (laughs) If you enjoy what you hear, please consider leaving a kind word and a review on your app of choice. And let me know you heard about me here on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to me. Finally, take a moment, please, to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012 and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Otis Jari, and it's been a pleasure, as always. Tune in again next week, when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.